Welcome, everyone. Today is August 6, 2010. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and very excited to be here today with all of you and with Bruce Cohen, MD, who will be speaking to us a bit about hyperbaric oxygen therapy, sometimes known as HBOT, and its use in mitochondrial disease patients. This topic came about from a discussion we had in November with Dr. Irina Anselm about treatment approaches and updates on those treatment approaches um, generated by the Mitochondrial Medicine Society. And there wasn't any reference to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but there were many questions from patients and parents about that use. And so Dr. Anselm um, was gracious enough to connect me with Dr. Cohen and Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate the time sure. and energy you were taking to be with us. Um, Dr. Cohen, I can introduce you briefly, but I guess I'll preface it by saying that you're very well known in the mitochondrial disease community. I think you're, you're one of the fathers of mitochondrial medicine and a real leader in the field right now, practicing at Cleveland Clinic, and I uh, was interested to see that you have uh, some oncology background as well as an interest in mitochondrial medicine. Um, perhaps you can introduce uh, yourself a little bit more, and then we'll get started on our topic. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I don't want to spend too much time <clears throat> introducing myself, but I, I do think it's an important point that I've spent a lot of my career uh, working in clinical trials and to develop uh, treatments for uh, cancer and um, have spent a lot of time thinking about um, clinical trial design and, and how best to, you know, uh, make people better from the diseases they suffer from. So what we're going to do today is work our way into hyperbaric oxygen and what it is, but I really want to start out with um, the ba some of the basic physiology of mitochondria. And so I'd like you to click to that first link. And for those of you who have it, it's a slide um, that has a lot of stuff on it, but this, this is the slide with the sort of a yellow background. And um, what it shows is the electron transport chain in the main body of the slide. And uh, you can see um, the blue um, objects uh, which are embedded in the inner mitochondrial membrane of the uh, electron transport um, uh, complexes. Um, and these, these, unfortunately, are not labeled, but from the left, it's complex one, complex three, complex four, and complex five. And uh, what you uh, can see is a basic, uh, what we call energy flow uh, through these complexes. And really what happens at the level of complexes one, three, and four are that hydrogen ions, which are also called protons, are pumped uphill against um, our chemical, electrochemical gradient and stored as a positive charge in the upper part of that slide. And this is made possible by um, the breakdown of food products. And you can see NADH off on the left. And that basically is a high energy uh, compound that drives the pumping of um, these protons um, uh, to the north, so to speak. And in doing so, electrons flow through complexes one uh, to coenzyme Q10, which you can see on the, on the slide and then to something called cytochrome C, and then into complex four. And uh, this is, again, all made possible um, by um, uh, our body breaking down food. You can see at, at, at complex four, there's a chemical reaction where it says 2H plus one-half O2 uh, goes to H2O. And what, what that is is basically 
It's a complex form where the oxygen we breathe is burned with protons or hydrogen gas uh, to form water. And that, again, occurs at complex four. And what happens in electron transport is all those protons uh, flow through a pore in complex five, which you can see, which spins a rotor, which basically um, uh, condenses uh, a phosphorus group onto ADP to form ATP. ATP is the uh, charged battery um, of our mitochondria, which can go to work and then come back as the uncharged um, ADP. Uh, I'm just going to move to the second slide, and the link on here is uh, the giant's the giant shoulders. And by the way, that first slide was uh, it came off of a hyperbaric oxygen um, um, uh, website. Uh, the second slide comes off a website called Giant Shoulders. I'm really not sure what that website does, uh, but it, it shows basically the same thing in another format. Um, the critical part of all this is that um, oxygen is turned into water at complex four. And that's why we need oxygen. <clears throat> we need oxygen to basically keep this whole process moving. Um, it's with this slide that I want to talk about um, how mitochondrial diagnoses are made. And uh, basically what a scientist does with the, uh, the muscle or mitochondria in the laboratory is it feeds it um, different compounds. It can feed it NADH. Uh, which you can see on the lower left-hand part of the slide, or um, you can actually feed it cytochrome C, reduced. Um, that's in the complex three. Um, you, you can feed it different compounds and actually measure how fast they get to the next part of uh, uh, next part of the electron transport chain. And what you're doing is measuring the speed <coughs> of electron transport uh, of the various different uh, compounds. And this is how we go of the various different complexes. And this is how we go about diagnosing complexes, you know, one defects or complex three defects or complex four defects or combined uh, defects. Um, so in the simplest experiment, um, the mitochondria will be given NADH, and um, the uh, electron acceptor will be cytochrome C, and you, that measures how fast the electrons get from complex one over to complex three. And uh, that can be almost <coughs> viewed as in how, how fast a motor is running, or the RPM of a motor. And what we do know about car engines, car engines is no matter how good the gas is and how good your fuel, fuel injection system is, uh, it can only burn fuel at such a rate. You, you redline the, you know, when you, when you press on the gas pedal, you can bring it up to a red line, you can bring it up to 7,000 RPM, but you can't get it any faster than that. So there's a, there's a maximum speed at which the mitochondria can function, and specifically with which each of the mitochondrial components can function. And when we look at complex one, we actually dump in, a we give it sort of an infinite amount of NADH. So we measure the maximum speed at which all these processes uh, can go. And one of the things that we found out in early experiments is that no matter how much oxygen you dump into the system, um, you, can, you, you can't maximize um, the activity of complex four any more by dumping more oxygen into the system. The system will only go so fast, and actually that, that speed is pretty much um, uh, maximized at the concentration of oxygen that exists in the atmosphere, which is 21%. So you can't make the mitochondria in an experimental model run faster by adding more, more oxygen. I'm going to move on to the third slide, um, and this is just another artist's conception view of the mitochondria. 
And again, the important point is that the oxygen that we're breathing in, and this is in the lower right part of the slide, the oxygen that we're breathing in is mixed with the electrons and the protons uh, to form water. And uh, we're going to just close down that slide. Move on to the next slide, which is called, which is the MD consult slide. And this slide, the starting, this slide uh, will introduce the concept of free radicals. And um, uh, you, you, for those of you who have these slides in front of you, I hope you all do. There, there's some similarities, which they all look, but different artist conceptions. And again, you can see uh, the blue complexes, one, three, four, and some other stuff off to the right you don't need to pay attention to. You can see at complex four, the oxygen getting turned into water, oxygen being represented by O2 and water by H2O. And But just to the left of that, you can see some chemical reactions where it looks like there's a squiggly line leading down from CoQ10 down to this arrow where O2, oxygen, is turned into O2 dot minus, and that's the superoxide free radical. And uh, free radicals are produced in various parts of the mitochondria, and on the slide after this, I'll show you where they're all produced. But the main production of free radicals occurs um, somewhere right after complex one, probably uh, near the CoQ10 transfer step. So some of the electrons actually leak out of CoQ10 and leak out of complex one, attach themselves to an oxygen molecule, and turn into a free radical. Now, the body does have some mechanisms to get rid of free radicals. One is called magnesium superoxide dismutase, that's MNSOD. And with the oxygen, what happens with that, with that enzyme is the oxygen, the oxygen free radical is turned back into oxygen and water. And uh, if we have enough of this, um, of this enzyme present, we basically detoxify um, that free radical. Um, the superoxide free radical can turn into other free radicals, and we're not going to get into those processes, uh, but those free radicals damage um, various parts of the cell, and we'll see that in the in, in following slide. So let's close down this one, and we're going to go to a slide from the website nature.com. And in nature.com slide, you see the three yellow stars, and these three yellow stars represent uh, where free radicals are produced in the mitochondria. They're produced, again, at that level of complex one, um, at complex three, and there are some free radicals that are produced in the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And so uh, free radicals are produced in various parts of the mitochondria. Now, free radical generation occurs in healthy human beings. It's occurring in my body. Um, it's occurring in everyone's body. Uh, we need free radicals for a variety of healthy reasons, uh, but they also um, are part of the aging process, the natural aging process. Um, the next slide is from an ALS website, that's the Gehrig's disease website, which shows how these free radicals damage the body. And right smack in the middle of the slide, you see that purple and blue ball, and that represents um, the, an oxygen molecule with an extra electron called an unpaired electron. And um, that damages um, directly the mitochondrial DNA, damages nuclear DNA, and damages all the lipids in the cellular component. Uh, these free radicals really act as almost like lightning bolts and rip apart um, essential molecules, again, creating uh, problems for the body. 
um, going back to, um, I guess I went out of order with the slides, and I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to go to a slide called um, shop.goji, which is the next one. And this is taking a little while for it to load up on my, uh, here, here we go. Um, <clears throat> this slide shows us that free radicals come not only from the mitochondria, from normal metabolism, but also can come from external toxins. Um, these external toxins include ultraviolet light, uh, radiation, in fact, radiation therapy um, kills cancer cells by generating huge amounts of free radicals within the body. And those free radicals in the cancer cells rip apart the cancer DNA and uh, cause the, that cancer cell to die. Of course, radiation has other effects uh, on healthy cells, which is why uh, one can only get so much radiation. Um, smoking induces uh, free radical production. Um, certainly air pollution does, and actually inflammation um, from a viral infection uh, produces free radical um, formation inside the body. Uh, moving on to a slide from a, what's called blogspot.com. One, one of the questions people say is, well, what, what can we do to get rid of free radicals? And this is sort of a funny slide that, that shows you need to eat your vegetables and, 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 um, and uh, um, fruits. Um, and in fact, in, in there, there, this slide and the slide after that from skin revision um, shows that we can actually help um, eliminate free radicals in our body by eating uh, certain fruits and vegetables. Um, uh, I've been told that blueberries are the uh, source of nutrition that actually suck up more free radicals than any other food. I don't know if that's uh, from the blueberry industry or if that's a, a fact, but um, that, that's some of the natural ways to help get rid of uh, free radicals. Some of the um, other ways include taking certain vitamins, um, such as coenzyme Q10 and lipoic acid. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to move down to. Uh, I want to talk about um, um, what hyperbaric oxygen is. is a is a method of delivering um, more oxygen to the body um, than would be available. Um, otherwise, um, now we, our atmosphere contains 21% oxygen. Um, if someone's heart is not pumping well, or they're deprived of oxygen for other ways, we can um, put 100% oxygen um, in, into a, a face mask or in a tube to help someone breathe and increase the oxygen content in the body to resume a normal normal oxygen content at the cellular level. Hyperbaric oxygen. Um, is able to um, um, increase that concentration um, to the body by using extra pressure um, to uh, um, uh, increase the oxygen tension uh, available for body tissues. So um, hyperbaric oxygen has been used to um, uh, treat um, dive injury. Uh, if, you, if you come up from a dive too quickly, um, uh, there's certain physiologic uh, things that occur in terms of nitrogen uh, within the bloodstream, and nitrogen pops out of the bloodstream too quickly and can cause neurologic injury. And so um, the hyperbaric oxygen chambers uh, uh, historically have been um, located um, near bodies of water where people did a lot of diving. And so the Navy actually owned lots of hyperbaric oxygen chambers. It became known that one way to treat gangrene is to... Um, put people in hyperbaric oxygen chambers. And what this did was 
increase the oxygen tension um, at tissue levels that weren't getting blood flow. And in gangrene, what happens is that the blood flow is cut off to the skin um, and, and the, the muscles, um, and uh, they start to develop infections and start to rot away. And one way to get rid of the infection is to get those cells the oxygen they need again, and one way to get the oxygen in the absence of blood flow is to put someone in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So um, it's, a, it's a good way to treat um, um, uh, some sorts of infection and gangrenous, gangrenous injury. In, in my field of brain tumors, uh, we use uh, the hyperbaric oxygen chamber to treat radiation damage. Um, sometimes 10, 10 years or so after radiation treatment, people will develop this condition called radiation necrosis. And by um, putting someone in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, we can uh, slow down or reverse that process. Uh, sometimes, not always. Um, so it's an effective way of, of treating that. And <clears throat> the uses that I talked about, those have all been proven um, uh, using a scientific method of, of treating patients um, in a controlled fashion and uh, looking at observing the results. So in the next <clears throat> two slides, I wanted to give you a, a very, very brief overview of the scientific method and clinical trials, and I use Wikipedia as a source of information. And uh, I think these are two very nice articles. Um, the scientific method article basically goes into uh, an explanation that in, in science, um, the object is that to prove something, you need to use a rigorous controlled trial. Um, and um, sometimes the observations that are seen um, and are drawn out are not necessarily uh, proven observations. And um, and uh, so there was there's, uh, some pictures about halfway down about um, horses galloping and the observation that um, how, how horses gallop um, uh, in terms of what is thought to be true and what really is true, um, um, you know, are are, are two uh, very very different things. One of the one of the real points of the scientific method is that to make a statement that something works, you have to prove it works. Uh, by not proving it doesn't work, um, you haven't made a, um, a a statement. So, when talking about whether hyperbaric oxygen is helpful in mitochondrial disease, it's the obligation of the person uh, who says it works to prove it works. It's not the obligation of a naysayer to prove uh, that um, uh, it doesn't work. So, um, and that's, that's, that's believed in every single uh, part of science. It's, it's, um, it's the obligation uh, to prove something is valuable, um, not the opposite. Um, so, and, and, and that, that, pr that proof has to be done uh, using a standard uh, method um, that is described in, in plain English, um, um, although somewhat long, uh, in this this article. But I think that this is worth reading. Um, the, art, the next article on clinical trials um, goes into how, in medicine, we design trials um, to uh, to establish um, efficacy, which means effectiveness of treatment or uh, non-efficacy. And these trials are. Um, are described in here, um, but the, I really want to talk about phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. 
and um, in, in, in phase one trials, uh, the purpose of a phase one trial is to establish um, that uh, the, uh, what's called the, uh, the maximum tolerated dose of a treatment. Um, and it's also called a dose ranging trial. So patients will be treated at, um, you know, the first five patients may be treated at such a small dose of a medication, we wouldn't expect any effectiveness, um, uh, but we wouldn't expect it to be harmful. And then typically the dose will be doubled in the next five or ten patients and then doubled again and then doubled again and then doubled again. And certain, at a certain point, you start seeing that the medication that you're giving the patient actually is causing harm, not good, and that's the maximum that that leads you to the ability to establish a maximum tolerated dose of a medication. Normally, um, once we've figured out what the maximum tolerated dose of a medication is, we could bring it into a phase two trial, and that's to establish um, effectiveness. And um, once, again, once you have that safety data, you can then determine whether it's effective in a group of patients um, or at least have an idea of whether it may be effective. And then the purpose of a phase three trial is to uh, establish um, that the treatment is better than other uh, treatments for a disease. Now, in any one disease, um, sometimes it's really hard to develop a proper phase two or sometimes much harder to provide a proper phase three trial. So it's a sort of a silly um, discussion um, of this. No one would envision a phase three trial in determining whether a parachute um, is effective for stopping death when jumping out of an airplane. Because in, in that trial, you would have to give half the uh, participants no parachute and let them jump out of an airplane and half the patients a parachute. And of course, uh, we all know from observation uh, uh, um, that a parachute uh, is much more effective at stopping um, death from jumping out of an airplane than no parachute. And again, that's sort of a silly, uh, but um, a silly uh, point. But um, sometimes we have to make that uh, to uh, understand um, uh, that certain things just don't make sense to do a clinical trial on. Um, and uh, but 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 sometimes you really have to put. Um, uh, something to the test to really understand whether it's effective or not. So 20, 30 years ago, everyone was starting to think aspirin was preventing heart attacks. And um, it made sense to, um, that, that, you know, 30 years ago, doctors were talking about putting everyone on aspirin. But after a trial on women using 10,000 women, uh, women um, it was discovered that uh, aspirin really isn't that effective against preventing heart attacks in women, but it's effective at preventing strokes. So um, sometimes you have to go through the trial to actually find out um, really how good uh, a medication is or is not. When designing phase three trials, we also want to look at, you know, what what the alternative is um, uh, to trial design. And um, sometimes we make recommendations even without information based on phase two and phase three trials uh, because we know from other trial experiments, the treatment is not toxic um, and, uh, and or is so cheap and not toxic, um, it, it, it almost makes it impossible to do a, a proper trial. And so what we can get into this discussion a little bit later. Uh, I'm almost out of time before we start taking questions uh, and answers. Um, but I want to get back to, I want to get back to um, 
slide number, uh, the giant shoulder slide. So that's the second slide. And talk about what hyperbaric oxygen uh, does and um, uh, and what it, what, it, what it doesn't do. It's the, the belief among scientists that hyperbaric oxygen can't speed up the process of electron transport. That electron transport, the substrates of NADH and cytochrome C and, and such, um, um, are the rate-limiting step, and the actual ability for the motors to spin on these complexes um, are the rate-limiting step, not the presence um, of, of oxygen, and certainly not uh, excessive amounts of oxygen. It's also the common belief that adding oxygen to systems um, that don't need it results in extra free radical uh, generation and damage. And we know from <coughs> the, you know, the, the the, the various earliest experiments in using uh, extra oxygen delivered, you know, nasally um, uh, can be damaging, and that's best demonstrated in what happens to neonates, um, infants treated with oxygen therapy, and they go blind. They go blind because they develop excessive free radical damage in the retina, and um, again, that was known back in 1950. Um, so. What I am, the reason I am unenthusiastic about hyperbaric oxygen and mitochondrial disease is uh, because uh, it is not the rate limiting step at how fast complex four can work. Uh, there's no scientific evidence, uh, there is none, that adding extra oxygen improves the speed of electron transport and the risk of free radical generation. Um, uh, although, uh, theoretical and mitochondrial patients, certainly well-established patients without mitochondrial disease, uh, seems to put people at um, untold risk. Um, furthermore, um, I have seen one child who um, died with a mitochondrial disease die as a result of hyperbaric oxygen treatment, um, and, uh, and and I've talked about him in my uh, my talks. Uh, so that's why I am unenthusiastic about it. People say, well, okay, so you're unenthusiastic about it, big deal. Um, why don't, you know, would you be enthusiastic about it if we could prove that it would work? And so I would say, well, sure, um, design a trial. And, uh, and uh, one of the things that we've learned very early on in medicine is um, cases, case reports in medicine, although they were all the rage back in the 1950s and 60s for various different diseases, um, um, uh, really don't mean much in terms of extending um, uh, that truth um, of a patient doing well to uh, that of others. And we've certainly seen this in, in our clinical trials. I've been involved in, in chemotherapy trials where our first two or three patients did great, and we thought we had found the cure for brain tumors. In the next 30 didn't, and then you know, the next 60 did not as well. And we were lulled into um, a sense that we, you know, just because of our early ex excitement about how the first patient or two or three did, um, that, that something was effective. Um, so I'm going to stop here, and I think we've taken my time, and we've got about 25 minutes to answer questions. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Uh, I really appreciate that. So I'm going to open the line for questions. just want to remind everyone that, uh, you know, I know many of you are passionate about this subject, but I encourage you to take this opportunity to um, 
learn more information and to frame your question in such a way that it will be relevant to as many folks on the call as possible, even though many of you have um, very unique and or complicated situations um, so that we have as much time to take several questions. All right, so here we go. We're just going to unmute everyone. So, uh, and I encourage all of you to use that star six option to mute or unmute your own line so that we can, again, limit the background noise to um, as much as possible. So when you ask a question, if you'll just give us a, a short introduction of um, yourself and then ask the question. So who will ask the first question? Hi, I will. Um, Annie Gorham. Um, I I use um, oxygen at night, um, every night. It, uh, I use St. George Pole, and that's not, you don't think that's really effective? Well, it depends on what you're using oxygen for. So um, um, if, if you're using it because you've got um, um, uh, emphysema, uh, oxygen would be effective, yep. in, you know, because your body, your your oxygen content in your body is low because of lung disease. Um, there's certain neurologic diseases where oxygen seems to be useful. There's a type of headache called cluster headache where oxygen therapy um, stops the headache very quickly. Mechanisms aren't known why oxygen works in that disease, uh, but the observation is made um, um, by patients that their headaches stop uh, very, very quickly. So, in terms of mitochondrial disease, I wouldn't know why um, oxygen therapy would be helpful. Um, in that, you know, in that situation. And Dr. Cohen, to piggyback on that, sometimes folks find that they have low O2 sets or oxygen saturation, and well, so then they point. feel that they need um, supplemental oxygen. Could you? Speak for a minute about why that happens in mitochondrial disease. Sure. So, what we do know about mitochondrial disease is that apnea, or the stoppage of breathing, which occurs more often during sleep than it would in the wakeful hours, um, can occur when you stop breathing uh, within, you know, 15 to 30 seconds. Your oxygen content in your bloodstream starts to fall. And so, <clears throat> getting a lot of background noise from somewhere. Um, yeah, I encourage you all, if you're on a cell phone, please use star six to mute yeah, your line. So, thank you. So, um, um, so normally our oxygen saturation in our bloodstream is somewhere between 96 and 99%. Uh, but if you have sleep apnea or you hypoventilate, which means don't breathe deeply enough, your oxygen saturation will fall to, you know, 85%, 80%. Um, that's not a good thing that'll make you feel sick. And by taking oxygen at night, what you're doing is increasing your oxygen saturation um, to 99.9%. And when you stop breathing, it may only fall to 90%. So um, you'll, you'll still have plenty of reserve oxygen uh, to meet your, your cells' needs. So that's where oxygen therapy may be uh, quite helpful at night uh, for someone. But in terms of, I guess my, the, the, the first part of my question is in terms of making your mitochondria function better at night, I wouldn't see where oxygen would be helpful any more than uh, hyperbaric oxygen would be. But for, for people with low, with the fact that they don't breathe well, uh, very much like lung disease, it helps deliver 
that little give you a little safety net for delivery of oxygen to your cells. Great, thank you. Thank you. Uh, who will ask the next question? Me. I will. Okay, I heard two folks who want to take turns. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Oh, this is Jerry. Um, I have two children with mitochondrial disease. And my question is to you, Dr. Cohen, is we have done hyperbarics, and our children have all have lost, both of them have lost many diagnoses, including gastroparesis, immunodeficiency disorder, seizures, cellular disrise. My daughter no longer needs a pyeloplasty with the tube feeding. My son's EE is in complete remission and has been ever since. And what I know that you're saying that you realize that case studies are not as effective, and I understand why. So how do I go about getting a des designing a trial? Well, so um, I can tell you that having been um, a physician um, for 28 years now, mm -hmm. um, I – and, and having seen, you know, I, I don't, I tend not to see typical, um, healthy people. Um, I don't see typical diseases either because the typical diseases are, you know, handled, you know, and, and the patients never get to see me. But every, if not every day, certainly every week, uh, someone comes in to me with a story, um, that, uh, I have to shrug my shoulders and say, I can't explain it. So, and, and I don't have a problem not explaining it because, uh, you know, I personally have a medical uh, situation uh, with Crohn's disease, and I put myself on a celiac-free diet even though I don't have celiac disease, a gluten-free diet even though I don't have celiac disease, and uh, my gastrointestinal symptoms went away. And I mentioned it to my doctors, and they look at me with the same look on their face. Um, well, we can't explain it. Um, but what's the cost of you to do a gluten-free diet? And I said, well, it doesn't cost me anything. I just don't eat food with gluten in it, and it hasn't caused me a nervous breakdown, so I guess it's okay. And and so uh, I just move on with my day, um, and they move on with their day without being able to explain it. So lots of things medically don't have um, explanations that can be given, um, mm -hmm. even with a lot of thought because as a physician, I've thought a lot about why I would get better off gluten, um, and I can't come up with an explanation, uh, nor can my doctors. So um, I don't So I, I, I don't have an explanation why your, your children got better. Um, uh, it would, um, and, and, and once you've gotten someone better, it's really pretty impossible to design a trial. So the, the neat question would be, okay, uh, what was it about their mitochondrial disease or their biochemical process, whatever it is, got them better? And I think that would be a more interesting question. I mean, it would be a very interesting question to try to answer. I don't know, again, uh, you go through all the data, even with a lot of thought, why that would, why that would happen. So when someone does get better from hyperbaric oxygen, uh, okay. the, the question isn't, uh, the response shouldn't be, well, they really didn't. Uh, the response shouldn't be, well, you know, they didn't get better, it didn't work. The response from a scientific point of view is, well, let's try to sit down and understand this process. Um, and uh, maybe the process, maybe the, the best understanding we have is they had a mitochondrial disease and, in fact, they, they did get better. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to, to re-ask the, you know, re-ask re the question. 
okay, and how do I go about finding a researcher that would be willing to research into why they got better? Because that's, that's exactly what I would love to see. So um, I know that there's also been two other little girls that I'm close network with their mothers now, that their children, that's the only reason they're alive is because of hyperbarics. And, um, and then, then Joanne that was recently online. And, and so how do I go about, um, as a nurse, finding that researcher to come in and saying, okay, why do these kids get better? Because I, I did test one after, doctor, with all due respect. I did the test, and I changed nothing. I knew better. And I repeated my daughter's gastroparesis scans and her IgG levels. They're all normalized now. And by God's grace, they're normal because of hyperbarics because I changed nothing. So, Jerry, your question is, do you, Dr. Cohen, do you know any places that um, have an interest that you would recommend that? Sure. Well, okay. I, would, I would say, quite, quite frankly, well, gee, it should be the scientific H-bot. Uh, um, you know, why, 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 you know, why should um, uh, a cancer center drop what they're doing to try to answer your question? No, they shouldn't. Uh, why should Merck, Sharp, and Dome uh, who make billions and trillions of dollars on medication, uh, try to answer the HBOC question. Well, it's because it's not their industry. So if you've got an industry uh, or a scientific um, uh, community uh, that's, that's using uh, a treatment like HBOC, or it doesn't really matter, um, it, it's up to them to do the, the scientific work. It's, it's not, it's, you know, that, that's, where the, that's where the scientific energy should flow from, and it, and it, but it needs to be done on a scientific basis, um, and uh, really what, what I've seen as a physician, and not so much from HBOT, uh, because I really haven't seen that much, uh, you know, many patients treated with HBOT, but certainly with other, um, you know, other, other treatments is uh, they keep producing uh, data and we call this data N of 1. N means how many patients you treated, and 1 means 1. And you, you, without doing a proper scientific study where you, you treat 100 patients under a rigorous protocol, you just keep treating patient after patient after patient and, um, and generating really what amounts to no data. Um, and, and this is why um, in some areas of medicine we're still stuck where we were in 1950 because no one's done, you know, proper, proper treatments. So, um, again, the cancer industry isn't out to cure hypertension. Um, that's not their passion. Um, and and uh, the heart, in, you know, the heart is, you know, American Heart Foundation isn't out to treat cancer. It's not their, their passion. So, so the real question is why the HBOT community hasn't um, gone and done the scientific, you know, what everyone does is do the scientific uh, uh, experiment the right way. I know there's been doctors like Dr. Rosignol that have done it for uh, hyper, hyperbarics, low pressure um, for autism. Uh, so is that what you're referring to? Physicians like that are willing to take it on and do actual clinical trials where they have a fixed Again, number? I, 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 don't, I, I can't recommend any one physician or I can't tell anyone uh, to do a clinical trial. I can tell you that um, Dan Lacey at Dayton Children's Hospital decided since, gee, we've got a hyperbaric oxygen chamber uh, in town, uh, I'm going to do the clinical trial for um, cerebral palsy, and he's doing it the right way. 
um, they're getting patients, um, the way I understand the trial's design, is you're getting patients with cerebral palsy, and the patients are being randomized to receive uh, either hyperbaric oxygen or sham hyperbaric oxygen. Because when you're in the chamber, you really can't tell the difference um, if you're being treated or not treated. Once the, the belt, if, if you do it the right way, you can't really tell if you're treated or not treated with hyperbaric oxygen. So they're in the middle of the study of doing uh, the experiment, whether hyperbaric oxygen is um, effective in uh, cerebral palsy. Now, Dr. Lacey doesn't own the machine. He has no vested interest one way or the other. Um, uh, if, he, if he finds that it's helpful in, um, in, uh, in cerebral palsy, his life actually becomes much more difficult because he's going to have a billion patients that want him to treat uh, their, ch their children. But, um, of course. <laughs> but, um, but they're, they're, they're actually doing the study. And, and gosh, we're all waiting for the results because, you know, uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is helpful. So, Jerry, um, and all of you who are very passionate about your own experiences, I encourage you, and Jerry, I know you have, to post a comment um, on the website, and you can share your specific thoughts and questions. I think there's real value in um, grassroots information and in being I able to share that. Because I have. So, so let me, let me I, I encourage you to do that. So, so you know, I, just as a, an aside, people say, well, you know. You know, Dr. Cohen, you're 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 so um, you know you, you talk about why hyperbaric oxygen shouldn't be good and why we should be skeptical and you know you're not this way about CoQ10. What's the evidence that CoQ10 works in mitochondrial disease? And 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 when I give talks now, and certainly for the last five years, I'm very skeptical about CoQ10. What I do say is I have patients with CoQ10 that have had dramatic responses. I mean dramatic, life-saving responses. That have been my kids, my one child. Okay, okay. well, the, child. Okay. The, but the vast majority of my patients, the, there's, there's no dramatic response to CoQ10. And in fact, um, a lot of people question whether they're just wasting their money. There's a couple differences between CoQ10 and hyperbaric oxygen. Um, number one, no one has come up with a potential serious complication for CoQ10, um, and that's not the case with hyperbaric oxygen. Number two, despite CoQ10 is expensive and certainly over the course of 20 years can, can run, you know, $10,000 or, or more in cost. Um, it's, not, it, it's not that expensive, and that there's no – the person prescribing the CoQ10 is not benefiting financially uh, from, from doing so. Um, you know, the case of riboflavin is even uh, uh, more extreme than CoQ10 because instead of, you know, CoQ10 can cost you a couple bucks a day, riboflavin can cost you two cents a day. Uh, it's a lot easier to recommend a, a vitamin therapy that costs two cents a day than it is to a vitamin therapy that costs two bucks a day as opposed to a therapy that can cost $20,000 as a single day. Um, and so it has to do, a lot of the, a lot of the issues have to do with the cost. Um, with the, and, and, and with the um, and with the potential uh, um, toxicity. So I want to give others a chance to ask the question before uh, Dr. Cohen has uh, moved back into his clinic. So uh, perhaps we have a question from someone who um, has not had hyperbaric oxygen therapy or is um, not just uh, regulating their experience. To have please, a question. may I? Please may I ask something or, or say something, please? 
Go ahead. Yes, um, my name is Joanne, and um, I'm an adult patient, and um, I tried for a decade to find a treatment, and I, as you can imagine, I tried diligently and um, participated very tenaciously in every treatment I tried, and um, hyperbaric oxygen to this day is the one and only um, treatment that has worked. And um, I'm just, you were very informative and your talk is wonderful, honest, <laughs> and I appreciate it so much. I'm just wondering if um, you're familiar, the, the hyperbaric um, fellowship program down at Tulane in Louisiana, um, I know that they were doing studies on um, specifically the mitochondria and um, the effects of the hyperbaric and where the PO2 levels are um, 0.2, um, where they're so hypoxic that, um, you know, my gosh, they're just starving from oxygen. Um, how can that not benefit from the effects of the hyperbaric? Well, certainly if the mitochondria don't have oxygen being delivered to them, then they're not going to function properly any more than a car whose carburetor is, is limiting the supply of air is not going to be able to burn fuel properly. Exactly. So, so but, 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 but the mitochondria, the mitochondrial disease has nothing to do with oxygen delivery to the mitochondria. That's, that's vascular, that's heart, um, you know, you know, if you want to make the argument that you, someone's in heart failure because of a mitochondrial disease and then get better because of given extra oxygen, well, I, I'm not going to argue the legitimacy of that point. But um, if, the, if, the, if the oxygen tension within the mitochondria or the oxygen concentration within the mitochondria is low, well, then I certainly expect them to function better. Uh, when, being when, when they get an extra delivery of oxygen. So, uh, again, I, I don't know what that research is, and I'm happy to take a look at it. Right, it, they were doing it at two. No, and I, I um, encourage you to, to post it on the, on the website as yep. well so everybody can take a look. Um, I heard a gentleman speaking up with a question. Go ahead. Dave from Atlanta. Um, what, uh, what are your feelings on low-pressure uh, HBOT? Now, potentially less harmful than, than regular HBOT, or what's your feelings on low pressure? Well, there's, there's, there's two things that you may be talking about. Um, one is that, you know, we've talked about in, in certainly in um, uh, degenerative diseases about what, what people would do, how people would function if the oxygen uh, levels were actually a little lower in our environment. Um, and some of us feel that um, you know, uh, by lowering oxygen tension, um, you could actually slow down some disease processes. Now, that's all theoretical, and um, and um, and uh, at this point, and there's no practical way to put someone in a 19% oxygen chamber as opposed to our owner's atmosphere of 21% oxygen. There's also a, another technique which doesn't use high-pressure um, hyperbaric oxygen, but actually a much lower pressure. So it uses, instead of effectively getting oxygen tensions uh, extremely high, just gets them a few percent higher. And I, I know uh, a patient of mine has bought such a machine. You can put the machine in your own home 
and, and, and that would be potentially safer to do. What I would really like to see if someone wants to do a study would be a highly uh, regulated study where uh, probably get 10 patients or um, 20 patients with a mitochondrial disease, all with um, mitochondrial disease proven genetically so that no one can question the results in the end saying, well, this patient came from the lab in Atlanta, this patient came from the lab in Cleveland, and this patient came from the lab in New York, and they're all doing different things. But a, a very standardized um, um, a group of patients, and then treat them uh, either one of two ways. Hey, I'm going to for you. You can we can hear you, so be sure to use star six to mute your line. So either the patients all get treated, either half the patients get treated with placebo, hyperbaric, then wait six weeks and get the genuine hyperbaric, and the other half the patients get the genuine hyperbaric. Then wait six weeks and get the then they get the sham hyperbaric. Um, that's called a crossover uh, design trial, or just split the patients into two groups: uh, one group that gets the hyperbaric, and the next group not get the hyperbaric, and then see how things are at the end of end of all that. So I, as I as I said publicly, I would not be opposed to a hyperbaric trial done in that way. Um, I don't know if I'd want to participate in it because of my uh, personal concerns about free radical uh, generation and then my own personal knowledge of seeing a child uh, die um, after getting hyperbaric oxygen. Um, but it cer certainly could be done um, under, under proper uh, supervision, and I would very much encourage such a study if someone wanted to do it. Um, again, it's not my role to figure out who's going to fund that study. Um, the, 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 the industry that deals in cancer drugs funds their own study. The industry that deals in hypertensive drugs funds their own study. Um, and certainly, um, if, you're, if, you, if you've got a hyperbaric oxygen industry, um, it would be reasonable for uh, them to fund such a study or have the National Institute of Health fund such a study. So, Dr. Cohen, it's, it's 1 o'clock, and I um, I know that you have patients waiting to see you, so I want to take this opportunity to, on behalf of everyone who is participating and will listen, to thank you so much for donating your time to talk about this and to really give us such an informative perspective on um, use of oxygen and, and the free radicals and the electron transport chain. Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I, well, I want to thank everyone for participating. Um, uh, I'd like to actually see the stories posted online of the people who've had positive experiences because I'm here to learn too and, and uh, certainly want to do what's best for, for everyone involved. So, um, um, I, you know, I, I, I have found that it's much easier, it's much better and it's a lot more fun to just say, say what you think and then, you know, be, be shown uh, other stories and proven wrong if, at least in some circumstances wrong. So I don't have any problem being proven wrong. Uh, as long as it's not too much of the day, um, but I want to thank you. I want to, I want to thank you and everyone else uh, for participating in the call. I hope people have learned something, uh, a little bit more about mitochondrial physiology, which is uh, obviously my passion. So thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen, and uh, everyone. We can stay on and chat for a few more minutes, but we'll let Dr. Cohen go. So Dr. I appreciate Cohen, it. have a great day, and thanks. thank you again. Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Bye, bye. All right, everyone, we can stay on because I, I imagine um, Dr. Cohen was on a tight schedule today, but I wanted to give um, him the full opportunity. But if some of you have some other things you want to ask or share and relate some experiences with one another, I do encourage you to post those online as comments.
under the uh, the hyperbaric oxygen post because then then they're there for people who are not on today's call to be able to read and see and reply back to, and it's a great way to kind of have the conversation. But I imagine there's some thoughts and comments that folks might want to share right now, so uh, we can open up the floor for that. Go ahead. Thank you, Christy, and I'm actually going to take it to the next level. My kids, um, Dr. Natavich, which is Dr. Cohen's uh, partner, which we've also seen Dr. Cohen, I'm going to start collecting all of the before and after of the children, um, their test results. Um, we are we were seen and treated in the same clinic as Christy's little girl, Macy Shea. It's because of because of Macy Shea and Grace Pennant that my kids are so much better today. So I'm going to take it to the next level. He, he seemed to be open, which I, I appreciate his expertise, but he did seem to be open. You know, he talked about the gluten health and his Crohn's disease. So if he's willing to take on the challenge, uh, I, that's my biggest concern, where and how to address it and who do I go to with it. And he said he's not he's willing to be proved wrong and see these cases of these kids getting better. And so I encourage everybody else to do the same because until we start making, doing things like this, yeah, change isn't going to happen. And people are going to still have to put out thousands of dollars to literally save their lives and their children's as well because there are obviously adults with it too. Joanna's in particular is on here today. So I just encourage you all. It, it is hard. We live a hard enough life, no doubt about it. But um, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready. <laughs> You're so passionate about it. Um, I'm also hurt. hurt. So okay. I understand the skepticism. I understand all that. I do. And, and I know that uh, that Christy has some is very passionate about it also. And so I, you know, that's I my girl. That's great. Does anybody have experience with a center where they've gone that they feel like would be um, useful to share that information with the group? Well, this is Joanne. Um, the fellowship program down at Tulane um, in Louisiana. Um, Dr. Van Meter and Dr. Hart, Paul Hart, are um, the ones that um, teach there. And um, the Hyperbaric Center is out of uh, the Family Physician Center and also West Jefferson um, Hospital. Um, I know that they're very involved right now. They're doing um, a clinical study on um, soldiers that are coming back and um, with head trauma, and um, they're very involved in that clinical study right now, and they're also participating in the clinical study for autism. Um, so I'm not sure if they're free right this minute, but, I, but they do studies all the time. In fact, Dr. Paul Harch has testified in front of Congress like four times now on the effects of hyperbaric oxygen on um, all types of brain injuries and neurological conditions. So he truly is your go-to man. Um, it's Dr. Paul Hart, and where is he? Paul Hart, H-A-R-C-H. Oh, Hart. Sorry, I'm from Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I'm from the Midwest, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and where can I locate him again? Uh, wait a second, I'm looking up his email address, unfortunately. I no. believe there's a website also, um, is there, Joanne? It's like, it's like hbot.com or something very... Yeah, wait a minute, I'm looking for it, my computer's down. Um, 
Oh my goodness! Wait one second. Well, and you know, again, um, it is it is hbot.com. Okay. And, and I, you know, not to keep saying the same thing, but I do encourage you to post that online because there are lots of people who um, may be interested in the information. I, you know, I just want to throw out there that I think also um, the purpose of our call today was not to draw a line in the sand about right or wrong. I think that um, the premise of every information session that we do through MitoAction is to really empower the patients and families and parents with the information. Oh, absolutely. What may work for one may not work for another. That's absolutely. And that unless you understand um, more, the more you can understand about the disease and the disease process and the potential therapies and, and so forth, um, the more you are empowered to make good decisions and to kind of keep all that information and into your toolbox so that as you encounter new challenges with the disease, which certainly happens, right, weekly, daily, monthly, um, that you can use those tools and that education to be able to help you. And so that's, that's important. That's to know. And, and oftentimes doctors will tackle these topics like autism and hyperbaric mm-hmm. oxygen therapy and really, um, interested and, and I really appreciate them going out in this way to be able to, you know, take a stand and share the information on something that is potentially um, has a lot of different opinions. Can I ask well, absolutely. And Dr. I appreciate Dr. Cohen uh, giving us his opinion, but he also was open about, hey, but I, my struggle is, well, who do I turn to? Study my child. Study both my kids. Study you know, study others that are willing to come forth, that the kids have got better, because my life is totally different. My children's is totally different. I don't look for when the wreck is going to hit anymore, because they've only keep continually get better. I have a chamber in my home, and they just keep getting better. It's amazing. Stuck. And the only thing I changed is hyperbaric. They were already on the Mito cocktail. They've already had all these things in place that Cleveland told me to get on board, CoQ10, lipoic acid, I've been doing these things, and it got to a point where my daughter, it wasn't helping anymore. She was, I know that I had been studying hyperbarics for about a year, and it wasn't until I posted on a specific website that Miss Christie said, hey, you gave me your email and was totally forthright with her experience with Macy Shea, and I was like, okay, and then I got in touch with uh, Shannon Kenneth and Grace, and uh, her little girl was Grace, and I was like, there you go. It's my science. I'm out of here. And they have to do nothing but getting better. I mean, my son has been on seizure medicine since he's five. He's going to be 11. He's coming off of it. He is seizure-free. His language, his eye contact, everything has exploded into nothing but development. And granted, yeah, he still has autism, but it's a lot higher functioning now than it was before. And the seizures being gone is a miracle in itself. The eosinophilic disease is in remission. He eats like a horse. He's trying new things. It's like it's breathing new life into them. And my daughter is the even bigger wow that she's not no longer on infusions to keep her immune system from getting diseases. She's off of that. Her IgG levels are normal. Her gastroparesis scan is normal. This is a child that vomited so much she lost most of her hair. She has a full head of hair now and growing. And it's just been amazing. And I 
it's hard to sit still and just not share. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. And I'm definitely not drawing a line well, in the skin. You know, um, that's a great testimony. But I guess, what's the practical um, big question here? Is um, is insurance pay for any of this? How does this get paid for? No, ma'am. I'm in the current. What I'm in currently doing is now that I have the before and after. In my in my opinion, I have the proof of what is done. The before and after. Now I'm taking it to my insurance company because at first, no, it would not cover for mito. It would cover for if they were a burn patient or they had osteomyelitis infection in the bone and inflammation that wasn't being taken care of typically with typical uh, wound dressing and wound healing and all that. And possibly skin grafts they pay for, but they do not pay for off-label mitochondrial disease, no. So what's the cost of treatment? Uh, when we went to the clinic, it was, we remember Scott specifically, we took our, I just know we took our tax return and we went up there to do treatment with both the children at the Wisconsin Integrative Hyperbaric Center. It's in Fitchburg. Um, we are overseen by Dr. Uh, Kyle Van Dyke. He's an MD. And he, he treated the kids and followed them very closely. And we did mild treatment. We didn't do high pressure treatment because they have mitochondrial disease. He's very well aware of that, and um, that's his specialty is mitochondrial disease. So, um, anyway, that was track. Sorry, brain's getting scrambled. Um, so what, for, for folks who are on the call who don't know, um, mm -hmm. what is generally the cost of one treatment? Um, with our cha I can say with our chamber and all of the treatments, and I, Christy, pipe in if you're still with me. Uh, still with us, honey. Uh, it was twenty-three thousand because we also bought a chamber for our home. Hi, this is uh, Mike Ryan. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Hi, Hi um, I'm, I'll introduce myself. I got on the call late, but um, I'm the owner or part owner of uh, a hyperbaric uh, company in Massachusetts. We're just a small shop, family run, and we're, you know the owners are in it for. They have kids with different conditions, not mitochondrial. But uh, I can answer questions and post those on about the cost. Um, uh, generally, if you're paying like forty dollars per hour to um, one hundred and fifty at the most per hour. And um, but if, if you're talking about mild hyperbaric, mild, mild means. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean lower levels of pressure. So there's a lot of inconsistencies um, in the I mean, in the pricing anyway. But um, what does that mean, Mike? It's um, what does mild hyperbaric mean then? Well, it's, it's referred to as, as MH bot, um, mild hyperbaric oxygen. You can learn. There's another website I'll post to. It's netnet.mums, I think, or mums.netnet. But I'll put that on there. It's a parent to parent connection. Um, but mild, yeah, just means um, you're not using oxygen. You're using pressure. Because hyperbaric, that whole therapy is two things. It's pressure and it's oxygen. So. And isn't it also anything uh, less than two atmospheric pressure? No. Um, no. Well, for children, no. When, when you refer to mild, you're, you're only talking. You're only representing the the oxygen. Um, mild means without oxygen. So you're just breathing normal air, but what happens is the partial pressure of oxygen increases because it's under pressure. Children don't go below uh, or deeper than 1.5 atmospheres, so they'll always be um, at 1.5 atmospheres. Okay, because that's what we started out with, that room air at 1.3 atmospheric pressures, yeah. and then spurts of oxygen as tolerated, and then we ended up doing 100% oxygen in the hood. 
at 1.5. And my kids responded, usually you see a change about maybe with 40 treatments, what they went for, 40 rounds. Usually see about a change, Doc said, 20, 22, you start seeing changing kids. Some, you know, everybody's an individual, some later, some sooner. Our kids were the big wow. They, they responded by the third treatment. Right. And are you the one that has a, a chamber at home? Yes. Okay. So the chamber at home, when I hear that, that, that tells me that you probably don't, aren't using 100% oxygen. Is that true? True. I'm using the oxygen concentrator, which is about 92 to 93% oxygen at 1.3 atmospheric pressures. Yeah, I would question that 92, 93%. I really would. Um, I, I would. I would be hard-pressed to believe that that is not something at like 30%. So there's, there's a lot of inconsistencies, and that's why doctors are afraid to uh, – that's, that's why there are so many lines in the sand. Um, uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies in, in what's being used and what's considered hyperbaric oxygen and what's, being, what's considered mild hyperbaric. And so there's a lot of a lot of things we're not talking apples and oranges, and that's why doctors get confused as well. And okay, because mine, all my equipment is FDA-approved. It's something that I actually get from home health services. Right, yeah. The concentrator, and then the, I have an OxyHealth chamber that's FDA approved for home use. Right. No, I, I, I'm sure it's a good product. Um, we don't. I'm just saying, a, um, an oxygen concentrator doesn't produce nearly 100% oxygen. In oh no, it doesn't. I mean, nearly, like not even close to 40%. So, so for other listeners, um, huh. what are some other questions that you all have and uh, about this? One question I have, this is Janet, and one question I have is Dr. Cohen mentioned um, that the participants in the study should be those that have a genetic basis to their mitochondrial disorder, mm-hmm. which seems to be what many studies are doing. Um, and I think what's been happening is that the studies are getting quite focused, but there's still general questions, general things that can help people out there that have mitochondrial disorders, especially for adults that have an adult onset that there isn't the identified genetic link, um, in part because your parents maybe weren't tested, they're in a different generation. Um, but I think that that's one point, and I know in terms of dealing with um, oxygen levels, um, my sister is in Denver, she's a doctor, and pointed out that there really are different oxygen levels. They're starting to post, you'll be like at 100%. Um, but if you're in Denver or someplace, you're, you're going to be really a lot lower. Um, and so that, that's one thing. But the other thing is that a BICAP machine can be helpful, too, in terms of what the oxygen levels are and pushing it up um, if you have a problem desaturating. Yeah, I know many of the patients use BICAP. Are there any of you who use BICAP also? No. Yeah, this Ruth in Columbus, and I used a BICAP, and it made a huge change. And Ruth, tell us a little bit about what was the initial reason why you started to use the BICAP? Clinically, uh, what was the... It, it was a sleep apnea, mm-hmm. which uh, he talked about, and, and uh, my, uh, my doctor had been bugging me for years to be on it, because he had thought, seemed to me, that it helped adult patients. And I finally conceded and went and got tested and got on it. And it's made a huge, huge difference. I'm not nearly as tired as I was waking up than I was before. I, I finally feel like the sleep I do get with the bypass is much more efficient sleep than what I had before. So I don't know whether it's because of the oxygen concentration or whether, you know, brain cells are working different. 
but I think uh, it does help as far as you're not quite as tired uh, waking up as you were before. Um, great. All right. Other questions and comments? This is Elizabeth I know that I won this a few years ago, and I'm going to start again um, next week, but my pulmonary function test did indicate an improvement in inspiration um, and expiration um, after I was using the bypass. Um, I just have a quick comment about uh, Dr. Harch, H-A-R-C-H, at uh, hbo.t.com. Um, he uh, is absolutely like the forerunner, the, the pioneer. He has the most uh, publicity and he's most well-known in, in doing the studies with the TBI and PTSD. Um, the problem with, I guess, putting him on or asking him to run a, run a trial would be that he uh, would be perceived to have a vested interest or a monetary interest and he, he basically, because you know he's part owner, I think of, of the, the particular chamber. Um, no, he's not. Oh, he's not. Okay. No, no, no. So, so that's just, just that perception. Doctors, um, that's the first thing they will say is that you know they're paying for it, but they're also running it, so they have a mingled interest. And so that's something you just want to keep in mind. Is yeah, Doctor Van Nieba owns it, but okay. um, Doctor Harch. Um, just rent the space or whatever, however yeah, they do it. That type of disclosure would be very important. Great point, Mike. Great point. Thank you. Oh, that is very important. Um, other questions and comments um, for the group? Can I mention, uh, bring back the insurance thing? Go ahead, Insurance is a bugaboo because it's the national coverage determination regarding um, Medicaid or, or um, Medicare. And um, there is a lot going on right now. So um, hopefully very soon, I'm hoping, I'm hoping um, it will be covered and there are class action suits um, pending and things like that. So. Um, Hopefully, in the not too distant future, um, it will be covered. So there are things going on in that field. That's encouraging. Mm. Now, for those of you that are well versed in hyperbaric oxygen therapy, is there a website that you follow where you um, talk more about this and follow things like insurance, you know, regulations, and that kind of thing? Uh, we do everything through the Wisconsin Hi Integrative Hyperbaric Center. If you go online and type in your search engine, A Place of Grace, they have been more than helpful. I spoke directly. I speak to, uh, I like uh, Erin, is usually the receptionist at the desk, and she's given me a lot of insight. Also, too, um, a lot of it's my RN license and learning how to manipulate the insurance. I know it sounds really bad, but... You know, really documenting and keeping track of it. And when you turn all of those things in, like I'm going to be doing with my insurance company with the HBOT, um, making quick reference, because we all know we only want one page of information in front of us. So you give that introductory page, but then I'll have all of my testing underneath it and little reference tabs so they can easily go to it and see when we started HBOT, when we did this test, what happened afterwards. Got a big, like a storybook form. And it is very tedious. It takes a lot of time. But, boy, when you win, it's amazing. Because they didn't used to pay for my mitochondrial complex for the children. I had to really write the letter of recommendations, 
have doctors sign it, all of that good stuff, but it ended up paying off, so I do not have that, which has allowed that money to go towards supplement, other supplements that are also helping the children. And my age five. <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Anybody else have any other websites that they would want to share with the group? Um, this is Mary Kavanaugh. Um, I, I wanted to say something about the insurance because um, I come from the autism spectrum world. But um, I was able, with the research that I did, and you have to show them the research, and I went on PubMed.gov and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was going on in regard to autism spectrum. But I was able to get my insurance to write me a check of like over $1,100 um, covering the labs and even the glutathione treatment that my daughter needed, and they said they would pay for everything she needed from here on out. So you have to show them the science and the research to the point where they cannot dispute you. And I did go through the second level of appeal. Yeah, and what was that what was that website again? You kinda of broke up. Oh, PubMed.gov. That's yeah. all the medical research that's being done on anything that's going on in regards to health. Okay. PubMed.gov. Could you spell it? P P U B. Oh, okay, yeah. I got it. Let me, because you are breaking up a little bit. So it's, yeah. pub, it's PubMed, which is the um, the place where you can search for abstracts and sometimes full text. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. PubMed. Of, um, you know, any published medical journal. PubMed.gov, P-U-B, like boy, M-E-D, like dog. Thank you. Gov. Yep, and I guess what she's saying also is you can find the clinical trials. Um, often you can get, you know, abstracts and so forth there, and I guess I'll just throw in the disclaimer that, um, you know, use your energy wisely. You could, you have ten spoons for the day, and you could use all of them up on PubMed.gov. So. Education is power, and then really dive into it. 
But um, I was skeptic, I'm not going to lie, but <laughs> I'm sure glad that I'm not anymore because it's literally saving my kids' life. They they go to water parks now. They didn't have energy to do those things. They, they're like typical kids in so many ways now that I didn't have before. And I'm so grateful, so grateful. And we did the mild, and we were also seeing, because there is a risk for oxidative stress, which Dr. mentioned. That's why you're seen under doctor's care, and we were seen under Dr. Kyle Van Dyke. He's an MD, plus he also works face stream. And anyhow, you do have to look for those symptoms. Educated myself in those symptoms. So we were fortunate we never seen them. He's very careful at starting at just pressure, room air pressure, without adding oxygen to see how they tolerate. You know, it's not like you just jump in the chamber and go with this high pressure at 100% oxygen. That's not what happens. You do have to be careful, and he's aware of that with mitochondrial patients. And um, I don't know, I'm just blessed. <laughs> well, you're very blessed. Like you're, you're fortunate you found someone that you can partner with in that way also. Um, I think that, you know, two comments. One is I agree with what Dr. Cohen said that, you know, what, what would really be um, enlightening in the same way that we kind of wish we knew why some people who <laughs> take CoQ10 have a great response and some patients who take CoQ10 say, eh, no, you know, it's just expensive, but I don't feel a huge difference. Why? Where, what's the difference between those patients? Because sometimes it's not the clinical diagnosis that's the difference. It's something that we haven't really um, identified yet. And right. that's coming, but we just don't know. And I do think that there's um, a likelihood that there's something about your kids that made them responsive that we wish that we knew what that was, right? Because then we could really pinpoint that and we'd know that for people with this particular subtype of, um, you know, mitochondrial disease or this particular feature of the disorder that then they would be more responsive to that therapy. It would help certainly for it to get covered as well. Um, and then I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, I think in our mitochondrial disease community as parents and as adult patients, we're in a tough position. We're in a tough position of having to be self-advocating with a disease that is complicated and you're making big decisions and I don't mean it lightly when I say find physicians and healthcare providers to be on your team to partner with you in that because, um, I know that that's not easy to do, but I also feel strongly that, um, you know, we don't, we don't want anything negative to happen um, from kind of jumping into something without being well-informed or supervised. And so it's really important that, you know, that, that disclaimer, please consult your doctor before beginning any program. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, unfortunately for all of us dealing with mitochondrial disease, that's, like, not very easy. But at the same time, it becomes especially important because you really need somebody on your team to see the before the after as well as to be there kind of to help you troubleshoot as well. There's just a lot of unpredictable factors with, with well, any, anything that you would start, whether it would be, you know, swimming in a, in a pool for exercise, taking a higher dose of CoQ10, or trying a hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, two, if you don't mind me adding, is finding parents that have children like yours and seeing what they found success with. 
that helps also. Similar situations, have similar diagnosis, because we, as you know, and everybody knows in the mito community, we're all affected differently depending on whether there's mitochondrial malfunctioning in our bodies. Um, depends on what disorder or health issues we have. And that's really been key to our success. Um, again, that's, um, that's where Christy came into play and Shannon, uh, with her little girl. So, um, it's been, uh, very powerful. It's been very humbling <laughs> in so many levels. And, uh, I, I'm just, I'm really grateful. And I, I'll tell anybody that will listen, believe me, it can be the man in the grocery store. It doesn't matter where we're at. We could be in church. We could be at the zoo. If somebody wants to hear my hyperbarics, I'm like, come on now. Let's go. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just that factor of, you know, never giving up hope. Uh, this is Ruth. I have a quick question. Do you know if Dr. Cohen published the article about the child that died? from receiving the hyperbaric, you know, if there's any information about, you know, the pressure of anything that child had? Don't know, Bruce. I don't get the impression that he was um, administering the hyperbaric. I get the impression that perhaps that was a child that was, you know, one of his patients. That's what I kind of thought, too, and I didn't know whether he had, uh, because that seemed to really, that really hit him hard. I know, that really, I know. Um, and I think, you know, Dr. Cohen, like any of the physicians who agree to speak, is, um, you know, probably on the one hand very overwhelmed by the number and complexity of patients and um, yet yeah. has real testimony to their dedication and their real passion and sincere interest to um, to help. And, you know, the, the docs um, agree to speak and it's it's really... You know, I encourage you to, to post some of your comments and stories and say a thank you to Dr. Cohen as well when you do that on the website, and she'll probably go and, and review those comments. And so um, we, we just can't be grateful enough for that. I thought the presentation was excellent, excellent. Oh, yeah. He explains things very effectively. Yeah, and I was just kind of curious whether there were, because if you want to gather information, you want to get the cons as well as the pros. Yeah, and I just wondered if, if anybody knew whether he had any information out there publicly about that particular person. And I appreciated his openness at the end. That he told, he said specifically, pretty much he believes us. It's not like it, the theory is not to disprove what we're saying; it's to prove it. And that is a huge step in the medical community. Mm-hmm. Huge step. Mm-hmm. So I just want to let you know I have to go, but I definitely appreciate. Um, the conference, and I appreciate you all, and I appreciate the website. So more power to you, and um, I feel blessed to be a part of this. So thank you much, and I hope you all have a great day. Okay, thanks so much, Jerry. So Bye-bye. everyone, we're, we're wrapping up. Um, I do want to remind you of the other calls that you can participate in this month. Next Tuesday, we'll have a teleconference. Dedicated just to autism and mitochondrial disease, so that's uh, this coming Tuesday at 12.30 Eastern Time. You can find all of this on the website if you look at the news and events calendar. Um, and then there are support groups ongoing on Friday, so I really encourage you guys to participate in that as well. And uh, lined up for September, we have, which is hard to believe it's September already, we have <clears throat> Dr. Mary Kay Koenig from Children's Hospital in Texas, 
And she'll be talking about caring for the whole person and ways that um, we can kind of take back some thoughts on um, having a more holistic approach to mitochondrial disease and helping, I think, that that's important when you're sometimes caught up with lots of little symptoms and it's important to know how to step back and look at the big picture. So excited to hear her perspectives on that. Um, as always, if I can be of help to you, please, um, you know, drop me a line, director at mitoaction.org. The only other thing I want to tell you all is, um, well, two things. One is um, we are becoming more active on Facebook, and you can follow what we're doing and see the um, reminders for the conference calls and support groups and so forth. If you um, go ahead and just look at facebook.com backslash mitoaction. You don't have to have a Facebook profile or be logged in, per se. To see that, you can just go, and that's kind of a place where daily we post um, pictures and comments and reminders and so forth. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you all is that we're um, actively asking folks to register for our Awareness Week um, patient and family walk. The walk itself is optional. It's more of a day from our perspective to celebrate the lives of people everywhere who are affected by mitochondrial disease. And I want to encourage you guys as the people who do participate so actively with MitoAction through these calls to register as a virtual walker. And um, this is the one time of year that we ask all of you to reach out to your friends and family in the community for financial support. Uh, about 75% of the overall budget for MitoAction for the whole year happens in the month of September related to this event. Um, we try very hard then to just not have a big um, push on fundraising for the rest of the year and instead be focused on opportunities like this, bringing people together and bringing information to you. But I do need to ask for your help during this time of year. So if you would, go to mitoaction.org slash walk, and you can register even if you're not able to physically come as a virtual walker, and you can even have a virtual team. And a lot of families that I've talked to are going to do a, a picnic or a short walk or something that day so that we all are really um, together in community and in spirit um, on September 19th. So, again, any way that I can help you, I'm happy to. And uh, everyone, I really appreciate you participating and uh, helping in so many ways. So, everybody have a great weekend. And if you would like to email me, director at mitoaction.org. So, thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for hosting us. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christy? Yes. Do you know if the tea goes out to the island there? Um, the tea will go to UMass, Joanne, and then we'll have a shuttle from UMass Boston to the to the actual walk site. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we'll have a you know shuttles running back and forth, full handicap accessible, and so there'll be parking near where you get off at the um, the JFK stop. Oh, so I could even take the commuter rail. Yeah. Oh, okay, because I'm, I'm still not back on my crutches yet. I'm on the stupid really walker thing. Well, hopefully, you know, it, it's we've, we've thought of that, and we're hoping to make it as easy as possible. So um, that hopefully that will help you. 
Aha. Because otherwise I'd power crush, but I can't power crush, so. No, it's too far. I mean, it's really too far. Even for someone pushing, you know, a wheelchair. It's just too far if you don't have the, if you, if you aren't able to park right there at the site, which there is a lot of parking right there at the site, but for anyone who needs tea access or overflow, then we do have the shuttles running back and forth. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. I okay, might actually great. be able to come. Oh, we'd love that, Joanne. We'd love that. So, um, so let me wrap us up, and then um, hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. An awesome job. Thanks so much. As always. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Quick. Hello.